You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a very important subject that I'm calling and Dr. Joe Boot from the Ezra Institute has called churchianity. Now, in terms of importance, I think this one ranks up there with pietism, with patriarchy and complementarianism, some of the episodes that I've done on that subject matter. I think this is just as important as those things. It tends to be the air we breathe, churchianity does. Uh, but it's one of those things that you, you really don't, you, you know, like a fish that's wet, uh, you tend to not notice it. So again, in this episode, I want to talk about, again, from Dr. Joe Boot, Ezra Institute, the term churchianity. Highly recommend Joe Boot's material. He has a phenomenal book we'll talk more about. In this episode, it's called The Mission of God. And there's also a lot of really good content on the Ezra Institute website as well. Some really good podcast episodes from them included in there as well. So like the episodes I said that I did on pietism and complementarianism, churchianity is a philosophy of life and a philosophy that dominates in the church culture, yet it's one that most people never seem to recognize or consider. Right? Churchianity affects the way we see the role of church, how we see vocation. It affects men. It affects cultural engagement. What should we do about cultural engagement? It affects our views on politics, arts and media, and virtually every area of life. And yet most of us don't even know that it exists. So when I first heard the explanation and really the concept of churchianity from Joe Boot, I'd been kicking around some of these ideas, including pietism for a while. But this really was a red pill radical red pill moment that kind of brought all things together for me. It helped me to understand why groups like the Gospel Coalition push the kind of lame sauce content that they do on an ongoing basis. It's because of fundamental beliefs and assumptions that the Gospel Coalition has, namely what can be described as churchianity, and we'll dig into this. Right, This understanding of churchianity helped me to understand why the church's leaders have been so duped and duplicitous on political issues, right? They tell us not to be political, and then they go and they endorse Hillary Clinton, critical race theory, or Black Lives Matter, all of which is intensely political. So why are they saying that Christians shouldn't be engaged in the political sphere? Why do people like David French posting about how really society is more just than ever, and it's because white Christian Protestants are no longer involved in the process. All of which, by the way, is just, it's a huge lie. But again, why do people like this exist? Why do they keep pushing that crap on the church? Right? Why, on the other hand, have so many of the quote-unquote gospel-centered pulpits gone woke, they've supported BLM, they've encouraged parishioners to vote for the Democrat Party of oh, I don't know, dismembering babies in the womb, right? Why are they so susceptible to this? And what is it about this Christian moment in our theology? There's something embedded in the foundation that's causing it to crumble. How did we get to this point? 
right? Again, you could ask it in another way. What about the young, restless, and reform movement? What about this theology opened the door from the beginning? Maybe we didn't see it in the beginning, but the storms came, and so the foundations were tested, and we're starting to see that the foundations are not solid. And and why is that? What is it about the mixture of the concrete and the foundation of the young, restless, and reform, gospel-centered, Calvinistic, Baptistic, you know, type movements? What is it about them that is crumbling? Why are they weak? What, what was the mistake in that theology, right? Why were they taken by soft left, woke nonsense? And we're seeing this all over the church today, because clearly it's not just one person, right? It's not just David Platt. It's not just Mark Dever. It's not just Ron Burns. It's not just John Piper. It's like there was something embedded in all of that theology that is consistently failing across the board. And so I think we need to examine what that is. And I think, along with pietism, so much of the answer is churchianity. And again, we're going to unpack that in this episode, and we're going to do so. We're going to be unpacking churchianity. Um, We're leaning heavily here on Dr. Joe Boot's article. He's got a couple on related subject matter, but one article in particular is titled Churchianity or Christianity, the Need for Cultural Theology. So really, the title kind of says a lot here. And, And again, we're going to unpack this, so don't worry if you don't catch it all right now. But churchianity is the problem. And the way that we solve this problem is that we need robust cultural theology, right? So again, we're gonna we're gonna talk more in this show about what that means. We're gonna talk about Christianity, what it should be, not churchianity, but what could what should Christianity be? And we're also gonna talk about and unpack in churchianity what are the fundamental assumptions that make it so destructive. After we do that, we're gonna talk about how the church can regain a fully, robustly biblical perspective on church and cultural engagement. And we're going to talk about why godly dominion in every sphere of life is so important, right? Why godly dominion is so important for the household, for your masculine vocation, for politics, and for everywhere in between. Now, as I've expounded in previous episodes, one of the primary plagues upon the modern church is a theology of pietism. I want to look at that a little bit more today, just to kind of recap, and then we'll connect it with churchianity. There's a lot of overlay here, so I think some important points have to be made before we jump into the discussion about churchianity. So piety, on the one hand, signifies genuine, devout faith in God. Piety is, in general, a good thing, but pietism And I'm going to use Joe Booth's definition here. Pietism is the tendency to restrict the meaning of the Christian life to personal devotional disciplines and inward spiritual growth, right? Pietistic theology tends to focus almost completely on the inward elements of the Christian faith, which, by the way, are important, but it focuses on those exclusively, and it includes things like Reformed soteriology, right, the doctrine of salvation, doctrine of sanctification and personal growth, but it does so to the exclusion of the broader questions of cultural engagement. So when we ask a question today in the, in the mainline evangelical church, how should a Christian live? We mainly think about my personal walk with Jesus, 
my quiet times, my Bible reading, right? What is my emotional response to the service that I just went to? We ask all these sorts of questions. Are my emotions and my religious affections, are they where they need to be in my intimacy and relationship with Jesus? But we have come to totally neglect the broader questions of cultural engagement, right? In times past, not so long ago, Christians would have naturally said and asked that question, okay, I'm a Christian, and yes, I'm being sanctified, and yes, I need to read my Bible and pray, and all those things are important, but how then shall I go live in the world as a businessman, right? There are implications about how we should think about politics, and theologians and Christians throughout history have spent a lot of energy and effort to think about those questions. Well, today we say politics, economics, religion, anything outside the church, not important. Let's leave that to the pagans, right? One of the most significant consequences of pietism is that Christians have willingly ceded the cultural and political ground to secular humanists and to statists. And this is something that we're going to be talking about throughout the show, but really this underlying principle like if you take a patch of grass and you take away the grass and the grass dies, what happens? Everybody knows that weeds move in, right? Wherever there's a vacuum of Christians, the same thing is going to happen. God-hating people, atheists, humanists, whatever, LGBT, they're going to move into that space and take over, right? The, the pagans, as Ben Merkel has said, the humanist pagans are post-mill and they're paedo-baptist. Right? They want your kids, they're coming for your kids, and they believe that it's their right to rule the world. So as Christians, why would we cede that ground? That's exactly what pietism does. We let the enemy take over. Since the entire focus with pietism is on one's inward spiritual life, Jobu writes, quote, pietism has allowed the state, yeah, hear that, pietism has allowed the state to move into and to control most, if not all, of life. And we have given up the majority of that ground uncontested. End quote. So this is really why the shamdemic was so effective, is because for decades the church has been seeding this ground. You know, I can remember early on hearing Russell Moore preach in chapel at Southern Seminary, and that was one of the common things even back then. They weren't necessarily woke, but they were definitely starting down that path of telling Christians, hey, let's not be political. And really, when they said, let's not be political, they meant, hey, let's not be conservative. Let's stop listening to Rush Limbaugh. Let's pull away from those political conversations, right? And over time, what happened? Well, they just became leftists, right? We're, we're not going to listen to Rush Limbaugh, but we are going to listen to the critical race theorists, and we're going we're gonna to apply their principles to how we even interpret scripture now, right? Again, it's this whole idea that there's ground on earth that we can just allow the enemy to have, and that's simply not true. Now, likewise, pietism tends to be retreatist and ascetic, okay? So it's retreatist and it's ascetic, and I want to break those two things down. First of all, by retreatist, I mean that pietists deny that Christians have any responsibility to transform the culture. They'll simply just deny it's not our job to try to transform the culture. Dr. Joe Boot writes, quote, In general, pietists want little or no engagement with society, arts, civil government, any of this from a distinctly Christian standpoint, especially in the areas of law and education. And any talk of redeeming or transforming culture 
is seen as out of bounds, end quote. So the pietist duty is simply to share the faith, i.e. evangelism, and wait for the coming of the kingdom, which comes, they think, at the end of history, not in the present. So really two of those things that are, that are very retreatist that Joe Boot mentions in the quote, number one, law and education, right? So law has been dominated by critical theory, critical race theory especially, but all these things, by the way, Richard Delgado, intersectionality, critical theory, they all came from lawyers. So that's important to understand. And then education. Think about so many people today when you say, I'm pulling my kids out of public school and I'm going to homeschool them or I'm going to send them to a distinctly Christian formative school. What did the Gospel Coalition do? What did these people do? They actually got mad at other Christians and encouraged them to stay in California, to stay in the public school system, right? They're actually encouraging you to live in a, in a, in a pagan secular domain in which your children are being formed in the likeness of other pagan secular humanists, right? They're actually mad at Christians for wanting to raise their Christian children in a Christian fashion. Like, this is where pietism takes you, and then, and then we all wring our hands and we say, how come I sent my kids to the public school and they came back and, you know, I sent my kids to Caesar and they come back as Romans, right? Well, it's the same thing. They, it's embedded in the pietistic worldview and assumption of life to be retreatist, and it's just a really good strategy to get killed in the cultural warfare ground game. So I said that it was retreatist, pietism is, it was retreatist and it's ascetic. By ascetic, I mean that pietism derides pleasure in life, it derides it, right? Not good. And it tends to view the present world as comparatively unimportant. So pietists often refuse to do simple things like enjoy good food, marital sex, beauty, and indeed many of life's joys. Um, there's a clear parallel, Joe Boot says here, to medieval asceticism, right? So there was always this flavor in like John Piper's preaching. Um, I loved a lot of his preaching growing up. It's how I came to a more reformed, faithful expression of Christianity in my own life. But a lot of the things that were embedded in it were like, you know, Netflix paves the road to hell, which actually I, I kind of agree with a lot of that. But you could also kind of get this feel that like any entertainment, any enjoyment uh, was bad. Um, definitely has like an ascetic feel to the pietistic faith, right? It, it's very different if you're reading somebody like Peter Lightheart um, and you're talking about, you know, really enjoying the smells and flavors and actually the cathedrals and the beauty of the old world cathedrals. Like as Baptists, we were taught to like hate that, right? If you ever looked at a building and you were like, it's so beautiful, they would quote to you from Jesus telling the disciples, now I tell you, every stone will be torn down, right? Because you shouldn't, you shouldn't look on like beauty of architecture. And I think this was actually embedded a lot and maybe was one of the, 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 the blind spots of Puritanism. Everything has to be drab, right? They were responding to Roman Catholicism, uh, but hitting the other ditch in the process. Again, pietism is going to do that. And this word is that we use to describe all of that is asceticism, right? If there is any sense in which the pietist engages with culture, it tends to be limited to evangelism and bringing people to know Christ so that they can spend eternity with him. Even terms like discipleship, which are definitely used in the pietist camp, are also limited to one's personal devotions, to your quiet times. And, and we tend to not, in these camps, think of discipleship in terms of 
how a Christian should engage with the world around him, right? There's really nothing said about political theology or a theology of politics from Scripture. We don't really talk about culture making. We don't talk about a robust doctrine of vocation. Even in Reformed churches, we more or less pay lip service to vocation, right? What you do outside of the church, if you're a man particularly, right? We don't talk about that very much. We tend to talk a lot about missions, overseas missions and stuff like this, evangelism, going to the mall to share your faith with your friends, um, witnessing. Like, if people talk about bringing the kingdom, it's in those terms. Like, we tend to not think of, how should I bring the kingdom to earth? Well, you should start a media company, right? Most people in America in pietistic religion, we tend to not think that way. So finally, this brand of what I'm going to call truncated Christianity, that's what pietism is. This brand of truncated Christianity, what does it do? Well, it produces immature worldly people. That is the result of, unfortunately, a lot of Tim Keller's ministry a lot of what's come out of Redeemer, you get very worldly, shallow people who have not thought through cultural theology really at all. As Dr. Joe Boot writes, Christians in this pietistic environment attend, quote, churches where they can remain unchallenged week after week, calling on God for personal blessing or to increase their faith and obedience, but with little or no conception of the scope and grandeur of the gospel or the transforming power of the kingdom of God for all of life. Christians in this context can remain spiritual infants all their lives, end quote. Right? Again, his point is, you go to church and you never hear anything that is, that is going to challenge the way you actually live in the world. Right? The church today does not want to address topics like sexuality, like should a wife be at work? Should your kids be in public school in the first place? What is Christian education? We've completely left those issues alone and said, let's let the pagan secularist answer those questions for us. But as long as you have an intimate, quiet time with Jesus, you're okay. This is a a huge crack in the pietistic foundation. And I think it's crumbling across America and throughout the world where it has been practiced. So a large reason for all of this is because pietism is inherently antinomian. Right? What do we mean by the word antinomian? It means anti-law. So I was engaging with a, a lady on Twitter uh, today, and she said, well, tell me what you think about this subject matter, but I only want to hear what you think from Scripture in the red-letter words of Jesus and from the New Testament. Well, I mean, you, you want to limit the answer to, like, I don't know even what that would be, a, a tenth, uh, maybe less than that of Scripture? How, like, look at the red-letter versions of Jesus, which I don't recommend, by the way. But look at the red letters. How, what percentages of that are the total word of God? But what are we told in Timothy by Paul? All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, not just quote-unquote red letters. That's why I don't like that version of the Bible. But this is what happens with pietism. It's antinomian. It rejects God's law as a basis for obedience to the Christian life. And then it says, but go live as a Christian in the world. Okay, well, what standard are we going to use? When you say go love your neighbor, you're, they're not talking about the law of God as the standard for what love to neighbor looks like. Because lying to your neighbor is not loving your neighbor, right? So what does it actually look like? If you've rejected the law of God, you're not going to have, obviously, a biblical answer for what that would actually 
look like. And the, the, the irony in all of this is they've rejected the law of God, okay, because that's oppressive. The law, law equals bad, right? This is why I got blocked by Ray Ortland and uh, Dane Ortland the other day because I pointed this out, right? These guys are anti-law. Ray Ortland is making posts and he's like, you know, in 2022, Instead of talking about law, which kills and is bad, let's just talk about the good news, the hope, the joy of the gospel. I mean, to hate God's law like that, but then what do they do? They pick up woke critical theory to replace what the law of God should be doing, setting the standard for how you should live your life in culture and in society. I mean, it's absolute absurdity, right? Without the law, obedience remains a murky, undefined concept without any real-world application. That's where we are as a Christian church, right? So all of that is what I want to say about pietism, right? That's what I want to say about pietism. But now I want to transition and connect it with churchianity, right? I want to define churchianity, and I want to start to, as I said, unpack what is churchianity. So fundamentally, this pietistic, retreatist, ascetic brand of faith is founded on and closely connected to a key error, and this error is what I'm calling churchianity. Churchianity fundamentally does this. It conflates the institutional church with the kingdom of God. Right? There's a lot that I just said there. So I want to repeat it, and then, we'll, and then again, we'll, we'll go through this. Churchianity conflates the institutional church with the kingdom of God. So in other words, what they're doing is they're saying the church equals one-to-one the kingdom of God. Anything outside the church, not the kingdom of God, right? Then you can start to understand why they say, doesn't matter what happens in politics, that's not the kingdom of God. That's not Jesus' territory. He doesn't rule over that. All he rules is what's going on in the church. That's the kingdom of God. And I hope to show you in this episode why I think that is such a catastrophic error right? Conflating the institutional church with the kingdom of God as a one-to-one, this is called churchianity. So in other words, the coming, this means that the coming of God's kingdom is limited to the realm of the church and necessarily excludes the realm of, say, like the civil magistrate, state and politics. It excludes the realm of the businessman, economics. It excludes the realm of the artist, right? Arts, entertainment, media, None of these have anything to do with the kingdom of God, so do with them whatever you will. That's what churchianity teaches. They teach that these realms are insignificant and unimportant. Right? All you need to worry about is evangelism. By the way, how many men, I know this was me, how many men listening to this show, you heard stuff like this from the pulpit, you didn't even know this was coming from the pulpit, but you felt like, but I'm a journalist, and I really love media or graphic design, and that really... I want to use that for the kingdom, but I am really passionate about it. And when they tell me that the only way to serve the kingdom and the only really meaningful work is to go share your faith at the mall, I was let down. I was like, well, that kind of sucks, right? And, and generally, it was actually people in the church who were gifted at evangelism, telling everybody that the only, the only way to really live out your faith, the only way to really serve the kingdom was to evangelize every day, all day. Uh, for the rest of us, that was a complete letdown. Now, this gets so distorted, this emphasis on churchianity, that I remember people early in my Christian life when 
like they 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 lived that life like in college all they would do is go to college campus and like street preach and we would do prayer walking anybody do that we'd do prayer walking which meant that like some of my crazy friends we'd walk around the college campus and like my one buddy he would just be like shouting lord we pray for the mormons that you would send their souls to hell unless they repent like he's yelling this at other students and and they told us like this is the only valid way and so what happened when these a lot of these people, they got married and they started families. And you know what happened? I, one lady in sp- specifically, she told me, she said, now that I'm married and have children, I feel like my Christian life is over. And I thought, man, that is so heartbreaking because what a lie. Right? If you read Michael Foster, if you follow this uh, podcast, you know the thing that we've been pointing out from scripture is that being a man, taking dominion, getting married, starting a household, that is the kingdom work. Right, this churchianity thing, the reason it sucks, the reason I think it's such a letdown to men in particular, men are like Adam. It's in their blood and in their will to go and take the world and bend it to their will. Right? That's what God made us to do, to take dominion, to rule the earth, to name the animals, to build things like Solomon, to build culture, to figure out how to do timber, right? To figure out how to do ornate artwork and woodwork for the temple, to do crafts, like craftsman skills. God sent the Spirit on His people to create beautiful works of art and cathedrals and buildings, and that's life. That's what the kingdom is about. And then churchianity comes in, and they're like, well, the only thing that you need to do is go get a job so you can fund missions and evangelize on the weekends. That's the only way that the kingdom of God can be served. Right? No wonder men are flocking away from the church. No wonder. Right? Dr. Joe Boot puts it this way, quote, The visible institutional church is essentially identified and conflated with the city and kingdom of God, and so what develops, despite a common insistence that they are gospel-centered, right? All these people will tell you we're gospel-centered, but what really happens is you get a radically church-centered faith. And again, this is what Joe Boot is calling churchianity. The only way that you can serve the kingdom really is the church. Right? Churchianity reduces the kingdom of God as though it applies only to one sphere, the church, and it fundamentally deletes pursuing the kingdom of God in any other sphere. Right? Church is all that matters. Right? Most gospel-centered churches today I would say fall into this category. And even the ones that don't say explicitly that they're gospel-centered, they still do this. Right? It's why pastors like Tim Keller reject dominionist mindset, right? Post-mill, dominion theology, taking dominion for Christ, discipling all the nations, teaching them to do everything that I've commanded you. You know, Matthew 28, Great Commission stuff. Keller says no. He says all we're supposed to do is live in the midst of a pluralistic society and practice faithful presence, right? James Davison Hunter's book kind of lays this out pretty well. They really don't like dominion theology, and they're perfectly happy. They think the Christian goal should be, look, just exist. Just exist in the pluralist environment. It is not your job to transform anything. You hear this all the time from this camp. It's not our job to transform culture. Remember, culture's going to hell in a handbasket. You don't polished brass on a sinking ship. We just need to be one voice in the many. That's all we're supposed to do as Christians. 
right? It's why when a young man shows any competence or promise whatsoever, it's automatically assumed he should go to seminary and become either a pastor or an overseas missionary, right? Churchianity does this because we're taught that the only valuable vocation, the only quote-unquote sacred and spiritual vocation is to be a pastor, right? If you're competent at all, people are like, go be a pastor. Well, maybe if you're hyper-competent, you ought to go start a business. And there's ways to further the kingdom that don't include being a pastor. I know this is going to be shocking for a lot of us, but it's true, right? And this is what pastors, we'll get into this, this is what pastors and men need to be teaching, men need to be hearing. If the only way to serve the kingdom is to go be a pastor, and like 99% of us aren't going to be that, well, then pursuing the kingdom is a pretty empty endeavor, right? It kind of is like when you're a kid and they're like, I remember one lady told me when I was a kid, she was like, listen, she's like, heaven is going to be like sitting through church forever. You know, as a little kid, you're like, church is like horrible, right? I remember being long and boring. And then somebody told me like, you know, two-year-old. And then somebody tells me that it's going to be like that forever, right? That's what we tend to think because of churchianity. That's what the kingdom seems lame. Churchianity is the same reason why there hasn't been any teaching or emphasis on robust cultural or political theology. Have you ever noticed this? Men love to talk about culture. They love to talk about political theology. And then they go to church and they're like, don't be political. Also, you know what? It's okay to vote for Hillary Clinton. And abortion, you know, it is kind of a woman's right. Do you know how many men I talk to regular basis where they're like conservative men and they go to church? And they're just sick and tired of listening to sycophantic, left-leaning, soft, effeminate pastors. Right? This is a plague in America. And a lot of it, again, is because of pietism, but it's also because of this view of churchianity. Right? No teaching, no emphasis on cultural or political theology. It's why ministries like David Platt's Radical have taken off. Right? This was sort of a hubbub recently on Twitter. Radical is a ministry that espouses poverty theology. Ironically, David Platt has gotten pretty wealthy off poverty theology. And according to some, the people close to him, he lives in an $800,000 home. And according to public record, he's pulling in between ten dollars and $20,000 per speaking engagement. I loved what Pastor Rich Lusk, another Alabama pastor, said about it. He said, well, maybe for $10,000 more, David Platt could teach me how to divide my church and get sued by the congregation. Right? That's a zinger, and it's also true. But again, churchianity, right? The only way Platt and others operate, the only way that you can serve the kingdom is this assumption, right, that, that you have to give your money to the church. So that's what radical was all about. And that's why I bring it up. Like the only right use of money to these people is to give it away to missions, adoption, or to your local church. Right? But biblically speaking, if you have a robust biblical worldview and a a view of economics from the whole of scripture, there's absolutely nothing wrong with building wealth. Building wealth can be very much for the kingdom of God. Getting involved in politics, being a part of a media company, right? Being engaged in the arts. This is not ground we should cede to the humanists, right? We, we should invest our time, money, and energy there as well. And that's just as much, can be just as much a part of the work of the kingdom of God. Again, churchianity holds that investing your talents and skills in the church is the only viable way to further the kingdom. 
In other words, serving in local ministries, practicing evangelism, as we said, funding missions is the only truly significant work, right? Again, when it comes to money, the only meaningful use is a local tithe or funding missions overseas. You definitely got this mindset. Remember John Piper in his book on global missions, he said, really, when it comes to missions, you can go send or disobey. If you're not deeply financially directly involved in mission work overseas, then you're somehow not serving the kingdom of God. By the way, I put this on Twitter, but what a gross negligence in the church today, right? We give so many millions of dollars and we send our best and brightest overseas to disciple and evangelize the nations and the Southern Baptist Church cannot keep its own children. What a violation of the scriptural principle that before a man should minister, he should get his own household in order. Why are we so obsessed with reaching people in Zimbabwe when we can't reach people in East Atlanta? We can't reach the people next door. We don't know their name. Our children do not love the Lord, so we've clearly failed on the fundamental principles of formative Christian education and discipline, and yet we want to go send missionaries to the rest of the world. I think that, honestly, I think that the North American Mission Board, there are serious problems there. Why do we keep doing that? For many of us, we're just raised in this churchianity culture, and we're taught, look, if you're not funding missions, you're probably a pagan, right? Nobody taught us, hey, you should go start a business and stop being a corporate wage slave. Maybe you should, you know, start that woodworking business. Nobody was telling us that teaching us how to get skills, how to create passive income, how to invest in different forms of currency, stock market, etc. Build wealth. Why? Because we're pietists and churchianity. Just give it all away to the church. That's the only right thing you can do. Again, unbiblical and absurd. So I just want to just summarize what we've been talking about and kind of bring this to a close on churchianity. The first and central problem, so problem number one with churchianity, is that it's a denial of the total lordship of Christ. Churchianity is a denial of the total lordship of Christ. All of Christ for all of life, it denies this. Right? Churchianity asserts that there is a cultural space where Jesus Christ does not reign and where his people should not assert his truth, which again is absurd. As Dr. Joe Boot puts it, quote, Churchianity is at best disinterested in Christ's manifest lordship over other spheres of life, or any institution other than the church, and at worst, they are hostile to these things. Those in this camp are normally biblically orthodox in soteriology, again, doctrine of salvation, whilst pietistic and retreatist when it comes to culture. They want nothing to do with the culture or cultural engagement. In general, again, no cultural engagement with society, arts, civil government, from a distinctly Christian standpoint, especially in the areas of law and education. As we've said before, again, any talk of redeeming, transforming culture is seen as out of bounds. Number two problem, in summary, of churchianity, it has left the political sphere to be dominated by Marxists, feminists, and other radical leftist groups. We can think of the LGBT movement, the inroads it's made, even with people like J.D. Greer. You can think about BLM, right? Groups that Matt Chandler and others have supported, 
right? These groups have a distinct strategy for cultural engagement and transformation, and it is not according to the word of Christ. And so you've got pastors who are saying, hey, don't be political, but also support these political organizations. BLM, by the way, says, hey, we want to destroy fatherhood and the nuclear family. Matt Chandler is marching with them and telling you not to be political. This is why a lot of these guys, I've said, I I think that's just a false teacher. I I think you're actually just a wolf at that point, right? I think that you're actually leading people into soul-damning territory. You're doing it gladly. You're abusing the scripture. You're telling us not to think Christianly about all of life, and you're happy about the whole thing, right? Not only is the church ceded ground to the humanist pagans, it's just absurd that many Christian leaders are actually supporting the pagans now. Again, Matt Chandler, uh, one example. Now, as unthinkably despicable as this is, it's actually not all that surprising when our leaders have abandoned a theology of cultural engagement, right? They've spent their time, again, the absurdity here, instead of reading the scripture or biblical treatises or works throughout history, there's actually a lot on cultural theology. Instead of reading those books, We've got people like Tim Keller, we got people like Tabidi Anwar Ron Burns telling us, hey, you know what would be really good? You should read prominent feminists. Hey, you know what is a really helpful analytical tool is critical race theory. You know, we don't believe in Christian cultural theory, but you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, whatever her face is, and Richard Delgado, Richard Delgado Marx, they would be some really helpful people to read. You know, I don't really think Christians should have a distinctly Christian cultural engagement, but you should read the homosexuals. And hey, by the way, check out our speakers at Revoice. It's all about same-sex attraction among pastors. There's, you know, gay pastors in the PCA, non-practicing gay pastors. Absolute insanity. Why? Because we said from the beginning that we were not going to have a distinctly Christian form of cultural engagement. How stupid is that? Right? So here's what you need to see about these people and the people in churchianity. They're not actually rejecting cultural engagement. They're just rejecting distinctly Christian cultural engagement. Right? This is insanity. It is cultural and religious suicide. I want to quote Joe Boot at length here because it's so good. Obviously, you can read this as well in the article. We'll provide links at the end of the show notes. But Joe Boot says this, at the same time, however, the tendency among these believers in questioning whether a pious and retreatist gospel is big enough is to shift the locus of hope and focus of life from the church institute to the institute of the state and its powerful apparatus, its civil laws and equalities legislation, that is to a political enactment of social justice. So he, he's explaining here why it is that these people are like, we don't want Christian cultural engagement, but by golly, we should believe in an all-powerful state, right? It's a replacement of the worship of God for the worship of the state. That's exactly what is going on. He continues the quote, under the guiding influence of humanistic philosophy, social action, or what has been dubbed social gospel theories, these start to replace the centrality of Christ's atoning death, resurrection, and life-giving power. As a consequence of this, the kingdom of God is steadily identified with persons, movements, and institutions pursuing social and economic equality 
so that a kind of politicization of salvation occurs, right? A politicizing of salvation. With the state functioning as a de facto high priest in bringing about a secularized deliverance from oppression, moralism and social action thus gradually eclipse justification by faith in Christ through God's grace alone, whilst a God-centered inward renewal producing outward transformation is replaced by external political coercion as the route to the kingdom. The church institute, its preaching and sacraments, then become almost peripheral to the so-called main task of saving abstract political identity groups like the poor, LGBT, etc., and end abstract social evils like inequality. We need to end inequality. Okay? Tell me what it is. They don't know. Right? Ending social evils like inequality for the oppressed and other alleged victims of discrimination or exploitation, including the planet itself. End quote, by the way. Some really deep stuff there from Joe Boot. But yeah, basically the takeaway here is that we said no to cultural theology from a Christian perspective and what we've done in the place of a powerful... Look, some, some institution is going to deal with the cultural political space. And what the church has said is, it's not our job to do that. Let's allow the state to do that. And then we won't do it through the church. We'll just go around the back door and then participate it through leftist ideology. Right? This is, this is a bait and switch. This is a hook and ladder on the football field. This is a trick play that's not really all that tricky, but that's what's going on. We need to be aware of it. So third major problem with churchianity. This is a classic secularly imposed dualism. That's what churchianity is all about. It's a dualism by which the world is divided into two different realms, right? There's one realm in which Christ is Lord and his word rules, and there are other realms in which he's not Lord and he doesn't rule, right? Jesus is in your heart and nowhere else. Jesus is in your quiet time, but not in your voting booth, right? This whole mindset. Again, this has been historically manifested in various forms and typically refuted along the way. Things like this secular sacred divide. Right? This is what the reformers were pushing so hard against. Nancy Piercy calls something similar the fact-value divide, right? There's a realm of facts where we put science and everything else, and religion's not a fact, that's just a value. And you keep that locked away in your personal, you know, 10 minutes when you're actually at your house. But you don't bring that, you don't bring your religion parading out into the public sphere, gosh, who would do that? By the way, you should believe in gay marriage or gay mirage. Uh, I don't think so. For men especially, this means that the only way for them to engage in meaningful kingdom work is through the quote-unquote sacred service that they offer to the effeminate church and its gay laity. Again, watch the movie Grand Torino. This is why Clint Eastwood's character can't stand the priest because the priest is pretty immature and young and kind of gay and doesn't know anything about the world. And then a man's man like Walt is like, I'm not going there and I'm not doing that. This guy is talking about psychobabble therapy from the pulpit, and that's not really my jam. I just want to turn a wrench and help these kids in my neighborhood. So I'm going to point an M1 Garand at some thugs. Right? This is one reason why so many men give their lives to business pursuits. Right, they've whole sold investment there, and again, the church is like, "You're a workaholic." 
But if you're a workaholic for the church, that's okay, right? This is why so many men just, they say, I'm, I'm, I've had it with the church. I'm going to pour my life into work. And they want nothing to do with submitting to effeminate pastors and controlling women inside the walls of the church. That's all really gay and effeminate. I don't like that either. So again, I can understand why men do this, but I also think it's a mistake. It's why the reformers so adamantly, though, taught a doctrine of vocation. Like we need to recover this notion that every service rendered to God is sacred. Whether you're a plumber, whether you're working as a graphic designer, right? whether you're a pastor, all of this is sacred work that is about the building up of the kingdom of God. The small business owner, the entrepreneur, right? the mechanical engineer, all these people are doing work that can and is about the kingdom, can be about the kingdom of God. Right? It should not be limited to the clergy or missions evangelism. Now, the last thing that I want to do uh, before we move into some practical applications of this, I want to give one prime example of churchianity, and this is found, it's actually in the article as well, so if you want more details, but it comes from a recent interview. I don't know how recent it is. In the article, it was recent, but the, the, the article that's referenced in the article is an interview with Mark Dever, and it's, ca- it's called On the Mission of the Church. Again, Pastor Mark Dever from Washington, D.C. In this interview, he attempts to articulate the essence of the Christian's gospel-centered calling, again, in the face of challenges from cultural engagement. So now I'm quoting from the Joe Boot article at this point. It says this, quote, In a series of pithy statements, Dever declares that the sum total of the Christian's calling is to, quote, make disciples and build churches. The church is not clearly defined in this discussion nor is the actual nature and scope of disciple-making. Dever is clear, however, that the central calling of the Christian is evangelism, right, this is what I was talking about before, by which he means telling people about Jesus so that they can be forgiven, saved from hell, and join the church. No distinction is made between the life and work of the church institute and the kingdom of God. Now listen to this part. According to Dever, quote, Christianity goes forward by pastors raising up other pastors and sending them out. That's it. Like, that's the entirety of what Mark Dever said about it. Right? Joe Boot goes on and points this out. He says, well and good for pastors, but where does this vision of Christian mission leave parents, families, school teachers, truck drivers, business leaders, politicians, lawyers, doctors, housewives, farmers, scholars, architects, musicians, artists, cooks, builders? What about these people? What is their biblical calling to advance the gospel beyond just attending services, sometimes being an evangelistic witness, going to Bible study, or giving their money to overseas missions. So that's the end of the quote, right? This is a problem, right? Mark Dever's view is like evangelism. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Just evangelize people. Tell them to come to my church and pay tithes, and that's it, right? Boring. Men are not going to be interested. It's a really truncated view of Christianity. It's also a really truncated view of what taking dominion actually means that was supposed to be a glorious task. And now you're like, I don't know, man, here's your stapler. Go in the basement. If you see some cockroaches, spray them. By the way, you're not getting paid, but it's really cool. Awesome. Be a Christian. Go evangelize. Right? That's basically what that sounds like to most men. So now I want to conclude this episode by asking the question, what is the solution to churchianity? Right? We, we said this in the very beginning. 
But the solution to churchianity in one word is simply just, well, I guess it's two words, full-orbed Christianity. Full-orbed, three words. What am I doing here? Three words. Full-orbed Christianity. That's what we need. We need a robust doctrine of cultural theology, right? We need a view of Christ's lordship that is not relegated to simply just one sphere, right? Whether that's church, politics, or your personal relationship with Jesus. Right? Our Christian calling extends to economics, science, art, media, church, everything. Right, Everything relates to our Christian calling. So we need to recognize that any ground we abandon, as I said before, is ground the enemy will quickly swallow up because they are dominionists. So we can pretend not to be dominionists and we can get killed or we can just play the game to win and we'd be better off and at least we'd be honest with all of our cultural foes, right? Just like when you remove grass, as I said before, from a patch of dirt, what happens? Weeds always move in, right? It's the same thing with cultural spaces. If Christians abandon a city, a town, an area, right, what's going to happen? The leftists come in, the pagans come in, you got your queer bike shop next door, like people are pedaling smack, whatever they're doing, right? It's because people have abdicated responsibility. But here's the thing for Christians and particularly for Christian men. We need to stop abdicating responsibility and take responsibility for our community. Stop giving ground to the pagans. How many instances do we just stop going to, to public school board meetings back in the day when they weren't so horrible? Christians just opted out. Right? I remember uh, talking to a, a very faithful Christian man in a former community that we lived in, and I said, hey, man, you should go talk to, he was involved in local politics. Um. And I said, you should go talk to the homeschool groups. Maybe you can teach some civic lessons, you know, get people engaged. And he said, you know, I already tried that. And he said, I went to the Christian homeschool group and I said, hey, I would like to talk to your kids about how to be engaged locally in the civic process, in the political process. And you know what they told him? They said, oh, we're Christians. We don't really get involved in politics. We don't feel like that's our duty. Well, first of all, this is a disgrace to what has been throughout history, robust Christian thinking on this subject matter, but it's absolute abdication of responsibility. You know, how can you wonder that the pagans have taken over? You gave them your communities. You gave them your public schools. You gave them your public universities. And you said, hey, here you go. We don't, we don't need them. That's not Christ. Right? So what is part of the solution? Well, we need to recover, again, as I said, we need to recover a view of Christianity that is more robustly biblical and in which Christ's redemption and rule is rightly extended to every square inch of the planet. Right? Joe Boot says, quote, Christianity, the true gospel of the kingdom, cannot be locked up within a single institution any more than it can be corralled into the enclosure of individual salvation from the consequences of sin. For salvation, which implies total wholeness, think about this, salvation means total wholeness, and it is also a deliverance from the power and corruption of sin. The scope of salvation is as broad as the scope of the fall. He goes on, in so much of the evangelical community today, churchism and churchianity have replaced genuine, robust Christianity. In Christianity, believers are living out and applying and asserting the lordship and salvation victory of Christ for every area of life rooted in the scriptures. The gospel is the wisdom and power of God according to the Bible, for Christ is the wisdom and glory and power of God made manifest. 
His kingdom and rule is unlimited, and it extends over all the cosmos, of all things visible and invisible in this age and in the one to come. Right? See Colossians 1, Ephesians 1. Such wisdom in Christ and the gospel cannot be restricted to the church institute any more than the meaning of reconciliation of all things to God can be limited to the soul of individual believers. No, God's wisdom is for all people and all nations, and it is being manifest to all for the good of all. We need that wisdom, Joe Boot writes, we need that wisdom not only in our churches, but in our marriages, our families, our schools, our civic associations. We need that wisdom of Christ in our universities, in our businesses. We need it in our political parties and our guilds. We need the truth of the Christian gospel to permeate both family, church, and state as leaven through a loaf of bread. We must boldly proclaim and apply in detail the wisdom of God for all domains of life, regarding not only the way of salvation, but for the entirety of our lives, every sphere brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Only in this way will the gospel be unhindered and the wisdom and renewing of power of God be effectively released again in our time. End quote. What a powerful statement from Dr. Joe Boot. What are some practical encouragements that I would give to you that I'm working on in my own life because of this understanding of churchianity and a need for the real robust gospel applied to all of life. What are some practical encouragements for us? Applications, if you will. Well, number one, ultimately, the answer is that we need to be students of cultural theology, right? This is not going to happen overnight. But what we need to do is tolo lege, take up and read. We need to read the church fathers. We need to read the books that have addressed cultural theology. And the best thing that we can do is start by standing on the shoulder of people who've already done a bunch of this work in the past, right? We should not be driven by what critical theory says, right? This sham political theory, so much as what scripture says. And it actually says a tremendous amount about politics if we care to look and to research and study. Remember what Solomon says about wisdom in the beginning of Proverbs, it has to be mined from the mountain of God's truth. And so if you mine it and you work for it more than you work for silver and gold, then God promises to give it, right? It does not come easy and it does not come cheap. So we best get our thinking caps on and our overalls and do some hard-nosed study of scripture and of the literature that is relevant. So what would I recommend by way of a starting point on this literature. Number one, I would recommend, as an overall view of post-mill theology and dominion theology, David Chilton's book, Paradise Restored. It is a fantastic book, and I think it's not heinously long either, but I think one of the most important things that you can read about dominion theology and uh, that will give you a, a pretty good biblical understanding of the subject matter. Right Again, foundational work on dominion theology. I want to say one thing about David Chilton's book that he says early on. He says, part of the problem is that we've been taught this, you know, the world is a sinking ship. You don't polish brass on the sinking ship. But, but what happens with this theology? This is why so many men hate the church. This dispensational theology that we're all just, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we're basically just perpetually losing. Right? You see all these people cheerleading the church losing. We, we cede ground and we abandon territory, and then we cheerlead as it gets destroyed. How foolish 
and irresponsible as stewards is it to do that. But I want to read you an excerpt from David Chilton. This is page three. So early on, he says, all of this was rooted, this theology, in two problems. One was a false view of spirituality. Again, this is something like pietism. It's this unbiblical idea of spirituality that the truly spiritual man is the person who is sort of non-physical, who doesn't get involved in earthly things, who doesn't work very much or think very hard, and who spends most of his time meditating about how he'd rather be in heaven. As long as he's on earth, though, he has one main duty in life, get stepped on for Jesus. The spiritual man in this view is a wimp. He's a loser, but at least he's a good loser. Right? So what a great quote. Again, I think why men are not involved in the church is because we have no doctrine of dominion. Right? I've been saying this the whole article. Men don't want to be a part of a loser theology. Why is Islam so attractive to so many people in the world? This one world caliphate? I don't know. Sounds like a distortion, but sounds like the same principle of Christian dominion. Like men were made for it. They were hardwired for it. No man wants to be a part of a church where it's like, I don't know, let's Let's just evangelize and get our butts kicked culturally. That's pretty much going to be your life. Welcome to being a loser. No man wants to be a part of that. But again, we start preaching and teaching and reading about the biblical doctrines of dominion. Men get excited. Go figure. Right. A second book I want to recommend on the subject matter is Dr. Joe Boot's book. We've been talking a lot about his article, but also now his book, The Mission of God. The Mission of God is absolutely Phenomenal. One of the things that Joseph Boot does is he says, look, this, this dominion theology is really just the Puritan vision for the world, right? This is the way the Puritans saw the world. He traces that through a lot of their theology, and then he applies it to us today. What is culture? What is cultural engagement? All that's pretty big and thick book. Wonderful resource. People always ask me, what are your top shelf books? Both of the ones I recommended, David Chilton, Paradise Restored, and The Mission of God are both on the top shelf. Stuff to study all the time, reread each year. Hugely important to my worldview. So number two, by way of practical encouragement, what can we do? Number two, men need to be empowered and encouraged to serve beyond the walls of the church. They need to hear this from their pastor. They need to be told to take every thought captive, every sphere captive to Christ. Go do what you do and whatever your business, whatever your vocational calling is, go do that and bring it into dominion under the name of Jesus Christ. We need to recover the sound reform doctrine of vocation, right? It's there. We just need to dust off the book and read it and actually apply it. We need to be encouraged and encourage our men, not just to be priests, but to be kings as well, and to tell them to go and crush. We need pastors that encourage young, talented men, not simply just go to seminary, but a lot of these men need to be told to start businesses right? Not to go on overseas mission trips. These young men are talented, competent, etc. Raise them up in the church as deacons and elders, future elders in the church, while they're working on their vocation, while they're building a business, etc. Right? Working jobs is important. So how many pastors just need to be told that? It's not second rate, right? It's not second rate. And again, on that note, I think local investments. This is about local investments. Loving your actual, real, next-door neighbors is more important than people a world away. Right? Pastors, love the men in your church. Spend time with them. Encourage them in their economic vocational pursuits. 
We need to value educating our children. Furthermore, value educating our children in a distinctly Christian way. This is more important than overseas missions. Hear that again? Educating your own children is more important than overseas missions. We need to stop telling people that church and evangelism are the only meaningful ways to build the kingdom of God. Number three, men need to be encouraged to invest in, study, and participate in politics. By which I do not mean get upset on Twitter about what's happening and listening to more Mark Levin. Please, for the Lord's sake, no. No more angry Jewish political radio. No, instead, start local. Invest locally. Invest your life, your actions, your words locally. There's ways to get to know your sheriff, your local representatives, and to be involved in the local political process. Right? Wherever men leave a vacancy in a sphere, there will be weeds to fill in, and this is what's happened in so much of politics. Matt Truella said it in our episode, the men in politics today are worthless men. And it's because the good men left, in large part. They said, I don't want anything to do with this. But listen, there's going to be a huge work of reform that has to be done. Right? Pastors, likewise, need to educate their people on political theology. And again, as I've said, we have a rich history in Christendom of political theology. Right? We need to be reading a couple of books. There's, there's quite a few good ones, but where can you start? I want to give some recommendations. Number one, I think one of the best books that you could start with is God and Government by Gary DeMar. This gives a pretty good foundational, simple, clear uh, understanding of the different spheres, you know, the home, the individual, civic. Uh, where, where does our understanding for basic understanding for government and culture, society come from? in Western Christendom. He lays out a really strong, easy-to-understand case. So again, God and Government, Gary DeMar. I would recommend Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Lex Rex, The Law is King. Samuel Rutherford. Uh, Canon Press put out a book called Slaying Leviathan. That's by Glenn Sunshine. You can read that. You can read Vindicie Contra Tyrannos. If I said that correctly, hopefully. Sounded smart saying it, at least in my own mind. Vindicie Contra Tyrannos, A Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants by Junius Brutus. Read that. And as we've recommended in the show prior, by all means, read Matt Truella's book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But again, really good places to start. Men are going to have to study and read and, and learn. And Again, start here. Number four, culture starts in the household. It's always important for people to Recognize this. Culture making does not start in Washington, D.C., right? And so we don't start in Washington, D.C. either, and we don't invest the bulk of our time and energy there, right? Rather than having animus relationships with families, I would like to charge the church and pastors. It is your job to support the work of cultural architecture by helping your families build robust, strong marriages, households, etc. Like, assist them in the work. It's one of the cool things that I love about St. Brandon's Academy in Ogden, Utah. Again, Kevin Love, headmaster there, Brian Sauvey, Dan Burkholder, part of Refuge Church. But one of the beautiful things about the school is they've said, we want to assist families to strengthen families and households. We don't want to replace them. We want to help them in the work of raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so they're doing it in a very, very affordable way for full-time Christian classical education. I don't think a lot of things like that are going on right now, right? But these are the things that we need to be thinking through. The church support strong, robust families. 
right? When, when you have guys in your church who are like, hey, do you have my back? Like if I go start a business and I take some risks here and I'm being wise and godly and, and, and I'm being smart and all those things, I'm getting counsel, but do you have my back? Like that you have elders, pastors in a church that say, yeah, man, we got your back. Go for it. Go take that calculated risk. Be faithful. Be courageous. We're here for you. Like that's what the church needs to be doing. And this is one of the key ways that we can build robust communities that aren't all just operating under the sphere of the church, right? One of the problems is if you get a church and you say the church is the only way you can operate, it's the only way to build the kingdom of God, then you get all these talented men under one roof and they're all competing basically to be the pastor and they're just infighting. But what would happen if you had all these talented men and you say, hey, you go do a media ministry, go start a media company adjacent to the church. What if you said, hey, you go start a woodworking business. Hey, you go be a property manager. Hey, you go do this. Take your skills and go do this. It doesn't all have to be a part of the church institution. There's actually more room in the playground for us if we can do that. And I think men would be much tighter brotherhoods and gangs if we could encourage that type of atmosphere. So fifth and finally, Christians especially need to reclaim media. This was something I was talking to Andrew Sandlin about some time ago. I said, where have Christians really ceded ground and we need to like re-engage and we need to take things back over and build our own things. And he said media. And I thought, it's genius. He's absolutely right. Media, right? Think about things like, you know, Obergfell. You've heard this, this saying probably, Obergfell, like the decisions on gay marriage and some other stuff. It doesn't happen without will and grace, right? We, culturally, we don't get there unless we're just being bombarded by and, and like desensitized to homosexuality all the time from a cultural media perspective, right? So we need to reclaim media. Another quote I love comes from Lee Habib. Lee Habib was the one who helped start Laura Ingram's radio program. And Lee is fond of saying that to allow the left to continue to tell the story of America without competing fiercely with them is to commit cultural suicide. We can no longer let the media be run by leftists who hate us. And so here's another... I guess, acts that I want to grind. I have so many people who tell me this to my face. Hey, man, I love your show. It's totally changed my life. I don't support you financially, and then, and, which is cool. I'm not like begging people. I'm not hard up for money. I don't need your money. But here's the thing. Here's what chaps me. I say, hey, man, do you have Netflix? And they're like, well, yeah. I'm like, do you have Spotify? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, do you have Fubo? Do you have, do you have, do you have cable? Yeah. I'm like, listen, man, put your money where your mouth is. Like you say that you want to see more Christian media, but you don't support it with your dollar. Like you don't have to support my show. Go support somebody else's show. Go support the good work that Lore TV is doing. Go support the work that It's Good to Be a Man is doing, whatever, but support Christian media, right? We can't complain about these things and then not do anything about it. So just the encouragement, man, invest in Christian media. Don't pilfer and steal people's content for free. When you look, so many of these things, it's like, I, I did it for a long time. I was convicted about it. I was consuming people's content. I was like, I'll just take the free version. I'll wait till the free stuff comes, blah, 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 blah. And I got convicted about it because I've been talking about it. And I was like, you know what? I need to put my money where my mouth is. So you know what I started doing? I, I was going through my bank account. And it's like, how many subscription services do I have? Right? $9.99 a month to Spotify, whatever it is. How many of those were Christians? Not very many of them. So I said, you know what? I just need to rework my budget. I need to re rework my finances, start investing in the Christians who are producing good content, right? Brian Sauvé's Psalm Project is a good one for me. 
Like I consume all his media and I'd never given him a dime. I was like, that's pretty, that's pretty low. <laughs> right? Our family's totally changed by it, totally blessed by it. We, we never even support it. So again, put your money where your mouth is. If we want to see change in the world, we have to invest financially in those things. Right? So be encouraged to do that. We need to reclaim media institutions where possible and start new ones where we cannot reclaim the old ones. If our day is characterized by information operation style cultural warfare, as I believe it is, we need to pour ourselves into things like new book publishers, right? We need more canon presses, right? We need more video and audio podcasts that are of high quality, well-produced, sound is excellent, right? Pushed out regular, consistent quality content. We need more Christian music. We need things like Brian Sauvé's Psalm Project, for example, right? We need Entertainment, Lore TV. I don't know if other people are doing that project as well. But again, support these things, Christian documentaries, et cetera. Support them financially. It's good to do that, right? Support what exists and build some more. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Again, I appreciate all of our supporters. We do have so many people who are supporting this project. I love you guys. Continue to pray for you that you are going to crush in your domain where you are. Again, if the show has been a blessing, I really would ask for one thing today. I would ask for one thing. Go on iTunes and leave a five-star review and just leave a short comment, or you can leave a long comment too. Review the show that helps us get us out to more and more people. Definitely appreciate that. Of course, if you do want to become a member, you can go on Patreon or ericcon.com. There's, again, ways to support the show for as little as $5 a month. Again, appreciate the heck out of you guys. Hope the show's an encouragement. And until next time, friends, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.